0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter... Nope, sorry, back up. I almost forgot again. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to read this portion to keep us on track. Deuteronomy 25, please. I was so happy to see John playing. I, I'm thankful for that. Not to uh, you know, have some kind of downer comparison for others that weren't there, but it was just a blessing to me and, and, uh, in service. And all these young people, we had three I think today, didn't we, giving themselves to serve, and it just adds just that extra little bit to the song service to hear those, those instruments so beautifully played. So we are thankful for that. Amen. Alright, Deuteronomy 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now there, just pause. Justifying the righteous means to declare the righteous to be righteous. So it does have some bearing on our doctrine of justification. It's connected there. We often think though of justification in terms of God. Imputing us righteousness, which that's what it is, and then declaring us to be righteous. That is to say, God's declaration of a believer as righteous is the foundation, uh, or the foundation of that declaration is the imputation. There's a reality there. It's not a fiction that God declares us to be righteous, like He just you know close my eyes, you know see no evil kind of thing. No, He knows there's evil. He's imputed it to Christ. He's imputed the righteousness of Christ to everyone who believes in Him so that we can have that righteous standing before Him. But in the case of law, we're talking about whether somebody's innocent or guilty. If they they haven't done wrong, then the justification step is just a uh, declaratory step. It's a declaration of that which is true, that they are righteous. Or if they condemn the wicked, that's another declaration that The wicked are condemned because of their wickedness. And then, of course, uh, liable to punishment. So it says in verse 2, "...then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, then the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows may be given him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight." Remember Paul said sometimes he was, he was he suffered 39 stripes. Yeah, they made sure that they didn't get to the 40 by a little buffer there. But he, re, he received that on a number of occasions. Unrighteously so, by the way. If you think about it, just incredible how they would use that kind of thing. Verse 4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You might have that Jog your memory from last week's message. Verse 5, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It's hard for us to understand this, but it was so important for the passing down of the family lineage and inheritance and property and name that this was done so that a man's name would not be blotted out of the roles of the nation of Israel. I think we sometimes may feel that if we you know, kind of think like, "Wow, I'm a, I'm a dad, and maybe I have three daughters or something, and they all are married, and they take another name, and we have no other family with our last name, and it just is kind of extinguished." You know, you know that how that would feel. It's kind of strange, isn't it? That was much more pointed for them. So verse number. Seven. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. There's a book of the Bible that has a big point about this. Remember what that book is? An event, this, this kind of event occurs in that book. Yes, very good, Anne. It's Ruth. Yeah, that's right. So there was a nearer kinsman, nearer redeemer as it were, uh, but but, uh, Boaz ended up being the one. So uh, then it says, verse 8, Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him, but if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. So there was a, a shame attached to that, uh, that thing. And you can tell that by the sand, the sandal and the spit uh, ritual that was done. This was a kind of a serious thing that a man had to, uh, to, to, to not carry out his responsibility that way. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Verse 11, If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals then you shall cut off her hand you shall your eye shall not pity her you shall have I'm sorry you shall not have in your bag differing weights a heavy and a light oh Amos chapter 8 brother yeah right there there is not a you know you don't you don't take out the one weight when you're buying stuff and the other weight when you're selling stuff to give an advantage of a few percentage points to you as you're doing that. Because remember, they had the, the scales, right? The scales, so they had to have a standard weight and then the, the thing that they were weighing out. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have per, a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Boy, God was serious about Cheating and stealing, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. There's that word again, abomination. Verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you, sh- that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Thus is the punishment for those who do not take seriously the Lord's people or His commands. Alright, Deuteronomy 25. I trust God will help you with that. If you have any questions, well, I feel free to bring those up. We can address those another time. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we pray as we turn now to our morning's message that you'll help us to think with the Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God to understand what is said here, to observe what is written, and to interpret correctly what it is saying. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please, this morning. The Apostle Paul has said to the Corinthians that he is an Apostle. He makes a defense of that from the perspective of having the rights that an Apostle has. He has those rights, verses 3 and 4 particularly, he says, do we have uh, no right to eat and drink? Well, obviously that's not the case. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles? Obviously that's not the case. Uh, or as he, he says, is it only Barnabas and I who are a special case who, who have to work a second job in order to support ourselves in the ministry? And then he gives several examples to support this. He talks about a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd. He talks about even a, an animal, an oxen, as we read the oxen not being muzzled when he treads out the grain, um, and so he he makes those that case. We have those rights, but then he says in the second uh, in, in the second section of this chapter now as we deal with it that he's not using those rights. Okay, I'm I'm not using those rights, and then he's going to go on to explain to us how he thinks about this and the reward that he will receive by conducting his ministry in the way that he is doing. So remember, we're in the context of, you know, does Paul have to work a second job? Does he have to moonlight? Does he have to be a tent maker? Does he have to be a tent maker in order to support his ministry? And the answer is no, and we'll see that again today. And then, why does he choose to, to minister the way that he does. So after all that he said to defend his apostleship and rights as an apostle he de- he explains that he decided not to demand those rights. And I think as I said last time he's not only now some some interpreters will take the liberties of chapter 8 they will understand rather the liberties of chapter 8 and the rights of chapter 9 and they will equate them. I don't do that. I think they are different. He's saying he has a right to support, not the liberty to support. Now, he has the liberty to choose whether to use that or not. That's true. But rights and liberties are different things. And as I was sitting here this morning, I was just thinking, you know, it's kind of strange. There's a tendency, I think, in people's hearts, Christian, broader Christian Christianity, if you will, to take sins and to make them into liberties in their mind. And to take liberties and to make them into rights. And to take rights and to turn them into kind of inviolable things that can never be taken away or even volunteered away. I said this in a reverse way a couple of weeks ago when we talked about liberties. People pack into the idea of liberty areas where there really isn't liberty they try to say well that's a liberty i can choose to do that or not god won't condemn me for that god will be forgive will forgive me for that and they use liberty as an excuse for license to sin so now i'm just saying it the reverse way that people sometimes take sins and turn them into liberties and they take liberties and they turn them into rights that's kind of what the some of the corinthians were doing with the meat offered to idols they're they know that there's only one god uh, and so we can eat those. And since we can eat them, we're going to do it anywhere and everywhere we want to without regard to what it does to other people. So they take a liberty and it makes it makes like they make it like a right, like I have to have it. And you can't tell me I can't use it. And then, of course, we take rights. And as I said in my, in my footnote last week in my notes, we tend to expand rights to include all kinds of things that we don't necessarily have the right to. Um, well, we talked about political examples. Uh, I, I didn't really talk about them too much, but I had them in my footnote. But the, I, the general idea is you've got to be careful of saying, "Okay, I have that right now. You can't touch it, or I can't change my behavior because of that." So, side side commentary there. Okay. Anyway, he he explains he demanded he did not demand those rights. He voluntarily relinquished not only his liberty But also voluntarily relinquished his rights for the sake of the gospel. Okay? You should be able to find a spot in here, sister. (laughs) All right. Very well. Um, So, as we study this, we need to drink in this idea of setting aside something for the sake of the gospel. Namely, as servants of God, it's not our rights—in quotes—that we demand. It's—it's it's not, you know, our rights, our our man, our favorite preacher, our time, our things, our desires, and so forth. In every case, it's God's interests that have to override everything. Now, that I could just kind of sit down and that'd be it, because that's kind of what I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> But I'm going to tell it to you again to make sure you get it, okay? Now, it, it's like, and that's why I titled it, "Waving Your Rights Today in our message. Waving Your Rights. You know, you might waive your right to an attorney. Not generally a good idea, generally. Or you might waive your right to review recommendation letters. That's generally a good idea to waive your right to that. Similarly, we must learn what it means to waive even our God-given rights if it will promote the ministry of the gospel. The forbearance and patience that this takes in less than ideal circumstances must be, it is sometimes tremendous and difficult, yet it is important for us. And, you know, this only shows up when there's difficulty. When everything's going along swimmingly well, it's just, oh, everybody's happy and all that. What about when there's conflict? What about when there are differences? What about when there's pressure from the government from outside? What about when there's pressure to change your beliefs and and all of that? <clears throat> well, you you got you've got to stand firm in changing your beliefs. Those don't those aren't rights that you can that you can uh, you know muddle with. But what if somebody says you have to conduct yourself this way or you have to do this in your building program, your meet these codes or whatever? Well, you know you got to you got to flex. Some of those aren't the greatest example of this, but I think you'll see where we're going as we go along. Okay. Now, I started my notes with Roman numeral 3 there. It's not a typo. That's on purpose because it picks right up from last time, the first two sections of this chapter. Paul has the right to financial support. That's the argument of verses 3-12. to 12, But he does not use it. Look at verse 12b. <clears throat> Nevertheless, We have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Instead of benefiting from the right of support, he endures the difficulties of supporting himself. Now, the implications of this are notable for his weekly schedule. As they would be for any minister that has to work on the side to support himself. Can you imagine working 40-50 hours a week I mean, you you, you do that. Then on top of that, you'd have to come home. Every evening you'd be studying. You'd be doing some kind of ministry. There would be no such thing as time off for you during the week. The New Testament gives ample evidence of this in the life of the Apostle Paul. How difficult it was. I'm just thinking right now of a verse I didn't even put in my notes, uh, my more expanded notes than what you have. But... um, in, in the book of Philippians, he's saying, you folks sent to me once and again to my need. And uh, in the book of Acts, it tells us that when, when his co-workers came, he was pressed in the Spirit, and he was, but he was able to spend a significant amount of time preaching the Gospel of Christ, evidently because they had brought an offering of money so that he could stop working for a while in order to be able to focus on the ministry. He says to the Thessalonians, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. This is 1 Thessalonians 2.9. Night and day, laboring, that we might not be a burden to any of you by such means, he's saying, we preach to you the Gospel of God. Or in 2 Thessalonians. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. This kind of life, my friends, turns an 8-hour day into a 16-hour day. You work two days in a day. And then you take your time for sleep and eating and all of that stuff as well. Acts 18 says, So because he, Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, Aquila and Priscilla, for by occupation they were tent makers. Acts 20, verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. Giving testimony of the hard labor that he did. 1 Corinthians 4.12 And we toil working with our own hands. Ephesians 4.28 Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor working with his hands what is good. Paul gave an example of that to all the churches where he was and especially these ones that we've cited from the New Testament. Six, uh, six or seven or eight verses already we've addressed. Paul was a worker. Why did he do this? Why did he not just take financial support from those to whom he ministered? Or why didn't he quit the ministry and just work one job instead of two? And he explains the answer to his, this question with a negative purpose statement. Look at verse 12 again. Nevertheless, we have not used this right but endure all things, all these difficulties, all this labor, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, the word lest is not a word we use very often. Not L-E-S-S, but L-E-S-T. That's not a word that's common. But it means so that not. So that not. Uh, it is a it is a purpose. It is a, a reason, a cause, a negative reason or cause. It means, uh, and you see that, by the way, in the New American Standard Translation or the CSB, even the Net Translation, if you're familiar with that. Uh, some of the other translations kind of use the word instead or rather. I think it should be stronger than that, personally, in the translation. To Paul, hindering the gospel is not one of a short list of acceptable options. It's not an either or or a rather or instead of. It's that he, he feels that he cannot do that by any means. Hindering the Gospel is not an option for him. He thought it wrong, not an option, he thought it wrong to choose a compromising way that would hinder the Gospel, at least certainly in the ministry context in, when, in which he found himself to be. Now, in our context, let me just say say the North American context, maybe this is becoming less true today because the, the culture is less churched than it was, say, 50 years ago. But in, the, in our context, a pastor or missionary taking financial support is not a hindrance to the gospel at all in the eyes of the church, the people that are do, doing the donations to support him. In fact, if he doesn't take support, some of us would wonder if he's wise about how he's carrying out his ministry. In other words, okay, we're going to send this missionary to this place and he's not going to take support. What does that mean? He's going to be taking uh, time, a lot of time to do a job to support himself in that place. Now, in some countries, there's no choice. That's a necessity. So don't hear me condemning that situation. But in other countries... You can't just go there as a foreign national and take work from one of their people. See, they, they, that's offensive to them. You're taking work from one of their people who could be doing that work. So, uh, you know it might be looked on as unwise to send somebody without support. But notice that when we send a missionary with support, it's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a hindrance to the Gospel among us But it actually can be a help to the gospel among the national people to whom the missionary is sent because now he doesn't have to work, doesn't have to take a job from somebody else, doesn't have to ask for financial support. So he doesn't, he doesn't potentially offend those. Being yet unsaved, those people out there to whom he's ministering, supposedly, or those who have a cynical mindset, you know, about churchmen, quote, churchmen who come in and look for money and do some stuff and then they they leave and go to the next town and look for the next injection of financial support to their their cause. Uh, People can get cynical about that or suspicious about them asking for financial support. Um, Missionaries that are supported by us don't have to do that to the target people that they're ministering to. Furthermore, really, in my understanding, based on Scripture and our practice traditionally, we don't believe it's right to seek support from those that are outside of the church for the ministry of the Gospel. We don't seek that support. Upon occasion, over a couple decades of ministry, I'm just thinking of very few occasions in my mind where people who are not saved want to support the work of the church for one reason or another. They see some benefit to the work of the church. They've received some blessing or service from the church and they want to recognize that. And I don't refuse those in every case because it is a blessing for them to give still even if they're not a believer and it may be an extra connection that we can have with them. But generally, you know, we don't ask for money from from unbelieving people. Now, the Apostle Paul is concerned that it's possible for him to abuse or misuse his rights. Some Corinthians thought by using his right to support, that actually was abuse. Just using it was abuse. Now, use might not be viewed as abuse by others, which Could hinder the gospel, but Paul wanted to avoid any hindrance at all costs, and I use that phrase at all costs advisedly. That's what he's—it's costing him a lot. Now, uh, verses 13 and 14 actually kind of go backwards in the argument to show again that he has the right to support. So let's not spend a ton of time here, but just we have to touch it because that's where we are sequentially in his in his text. And by the way. Just because I say that it goes backwards in the argument doesn't mean that I'm criticizing what Paul does here. We, I'll say me, I especially like a clean, organized, logical outline. Okay? I'm an engineer, guilty, all right? And I'd be like, well, why don't you put that up with the previous four examples that you had if I were writing it? Yeah, if I were writing it, right? Yeah. We can't constrain scripture as a piece of literature to that kind of, um, how can I say it, harsh evaluation. We have to take it as it is. Paul, under God's inspiring work of the Spirit, decided to write it this way. And sometimes it's kind of like the way I structured the message where I said to you what I was going to say, and I'm going to say it in longer form, and then we're going to re- summarize it at the end, kind of like a newspaper article does. Um, that's a method of presenting information to help us to understand it and to grasp it, to you know, say it, okay, break it down, summarize it up, you, you get it better that way. It's kind of like what Brother James talked about this morning. 164 times the Bible says remember. you think it might be enough if it said it once, <laughs> but it can't just say it once. Why? Because we're forgetful. And although we might have you know very energetic way of being remember, you know, mindful today, probably tomorrow we need to hear it again to be, to be mindful, to be remembering. So he goes back to this. Do you not know, he says in verse 13, that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, speaking now of the Jewish temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the Gospel should live from the Gospel. Very good. So he gives this other example. We saw the soldier, the farmer, the shepherd, the oxen. Here the new illustration is of the Old Testament priests from Exodus 19 perhaps we could say or a little after that when they were established according to the law up to the time that Herod's temple was destroyed, A.D. 70, This priesthood ran off and on, mostly on. The priests and the Levites were supported by the means of grain and meat offerings. Uh, I think I have all those verses. Do I have those verses in your copy of the notes? Leviticus and uh, Numbers there? I'm going to let you look at those. A little homework, okay? The idea is this. you know, We think people brought uh, an animal to the altar, they put it on the altar and they burned it all up and it turned all into ashes, okay? And it was gone. That's not quite right. They offered the animal, and some of it was eaten by some of it was burned up, some of it was eaten by the priests and the Levites, and other was eaten by the offerer who brought the offering. They'd have a fellowship meal there at the temple. Now this is something like what we encountered in chapter eight of First Corinthians. Remember there about eating meat offered and sacrificed to idols? Where? At the idol temple. Well, in this case, it's not meat offered to a false god in an idol temple. It's meat offered to the true god at the true temple. So that's how it worked. And that's how the Levites were supported. They were not only just, you know, they didn't just give them money, you know, but they supported them with this food offering. In the same way, the Lord commands that those who preach the Gospel should receive their living from it. This is the normal pattern today. In some way, the spiritual provision of the Gospel should be remunerated by the physical provision of finances, of food, shelter, clothing, and the like. Unpaid elders and pastors and missionaries are not the norm. Okay, There might be exceptions, but they... As we say, serve to prove the rule. Remember Luke ten seven. the The worker, this is the Lord Jesus. The worker is worthy of his wages. He said that, and he was speaking to the disciples who were going out twelve or seventy to minister the gospel uh, of the kingdom. So, and, and let me just give this little uh, aside as well on this when. There is this idea, there is this important idea of support for ministers, but for the Apostle Paul, not taking that money had another advantage, not stated in this text, but let me just address it briefly. By not taking money, he was freed to give the unadulterated, true message of the gospel. What do I mean by that? He didn't have the temptation to change or shade the message to suit the hearers who were paying his salary. A big temptation for pastors is if they lose a couple of big givers in the church because they stand for truth. The money can speak loudly and cause them to... Shy away from that or change their doctrine in order to keep the wealthy donors happy in the church. It's a temptation on both sides of the paycheck. So the minister doesn't want to lose his job, and the congregation, if they're not very spiritual minded, they want to get what they pay for. You know, we don't pay, some might say. To come and hear a message about sin. We don't want to hear about that. We want an uplifting message. They hire a pastor who will give them an inspirational message. And I do have quoted here 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will pay for those teachers. And and then they will pay for that attitude later on down the line when judgment comes. That's an aside again. Now, in verses 15 to 18, the Apostle Paul is going to speak about his reward. His reward. And this is a, kind of a interesting thing. 15 says, "...but I have used none of these things." He says it again, just like he did in verse 12. "...nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the Gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward." But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the Gospel, I may present the Gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the Gospel. So he expresses again, I'm not using those rights. But, somebody in the Corinthian church, very cynical, is going to say, yeah, Paul, you're saying you're not using those, but I know why you're saying that. You're using a bit of reverse psychology on us to get us to support you financially. You know, trying to shame us into doing what we should, are you? To counter this objection, he plainly states, I have not written to get you to do the opposite of what I'm saying. Obviously, he feels very strongly about this because then later in the verse, in verse 18, he says, it would be better for me to die than to have this circumstance turned around that anyone should make my boasting void. He doesn't want to have this cause of rejoicing or boasting taken away. Paul's not lying here. None of his words are lies in Scripture, for God cannot lie. Now, besides the reason that's already been stated that he doesn't want to hinder the gospel, there's another reason why God has, or Paul has chosen to serve God this way. Serving free of charge is the thing that sets his ministry apart from mere faithful stewardship. By the way, it also sets his ministry apart from the other itinerant teachers and uh, and philosophers that were going around all the time giving their speeches. And they got to get paid for their speeches, don't they? You know how that is today, right? you go if you're a famous person, former president or whatever you go and you make a speech and you make, you know, 50 or 100,000, 500,000 dollars or some crazy amount like that. Like any speech is worth that much. And so that idea sets him apart from those people and it sets him apart from mere faithful stewardship of doing his job. And is that thing in which he rejoices? I don't know if I should uh, use a personal illustration. I won't. Ask me later. Maybe I will privately. But think of somebody who, like in Paul's shoes, has the privilege to share a life-giving message with everybody. And then furthermore think how he thinks, boy, if I could do this without having to have anybody pay for it, like it would be an extra blessing if I could just do it all in-house, support myself in-house, and not have anybody have to support me so that I could do this ministry. That extra, The extra thing of doing it without charge is something that makes him feel good. Something that he's able to do extra for God. He's able to to, out of a true motivation to God, say, God, I'm going to do the service that You've called me to do and I'm going to do it for free. And I'm going to do it with no charge that is an extra blessing to paul and that's why he says boasting it's not boasting is not a bad thing here it's it's his rejoicing now reward what he says what's my reward i think it's there's two ideas built in and they fit kind of together as a two puzzle pieces he could be thinking of heavenly reward for his service and he will have that but also reward is very suspiciously close to the idea of pay. Financial payment. Verse 18 says, What is my reward then? Here it is, that when I preach the Gospel, I may present it without charge. That itself is the reward for him. That's the thing that he rejoices in. And here's the idea. He serves without pay, so the pay is no pay. Because of that selfless attitude that he has, the pay is no pay. The reward is first something that he experiences in time that he can rejoice without uh, by, by giving the gospel without charge, but that undoubtedly results in eternal reward for him as well. This is this is amazing. As a Christian minister, it's good for him to be here. And it's even better to be with Christ. He gets a reward here and he gets a reward there. Amazing. Just amazing how he, he feels that way. Now, the method that he used had costs. Exhaustion was one. Very hard work. The second one that he was looked down upon by society. There was a football player who a former football player who gave a testimony at the uh, Republican National Convention this week and he said he felt some level of embarrassment at being so high in position and status in life as a football player and then he lost everything and he was reduced to what remember a chimney sweep but he worked hard and he 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 worked through that and and earned and and made a living and, and moved on to other things after that. It was an inspiring account of how he conducted himself in that situation. But he felt a sense of shame in a way about that. Why? Because there's a way in which people look down on people who work with their hands. Have you felt that before? People, oh, you don't have a bachelor's degree? Um, you know, you work with your hands. You you you're, you're a, a, an electrician, a plumber. You dig ditches, my friends. As Christians, we ought not to look down upon people who work with their hands. I I don't tolerate it myself. Uh, one of the reasons that I come from a family of people who work with their hands. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the fellow who fixed your car from time to time. And, uh, and and I I'm glad to do that as well. I'm glad to have my hands on things and people shouldn't be looking down on that. I think in fact the smartest people are the people that can actually do stuff. You know? I I, I yeah, I, I know both sides of the equation, okay? I have a PhD in engineering and masters degrees and all the education and all that stuff. But when you see somebody who can take a broken something and fix it, and they just understand it intuitively and you're scratching your head, I'm scratching my head and saying, "How in the world?" it's amazing, but yet people look down on why because they can't get their fingernails dirty they can't They can't be associated with low society like that. Paul was reviled for that sort of thing, so don't have that attitude, my friends. So this 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 approach to ministry has costs. It has costs to it. But he chose to do it. Now, what is the what is the requirement? There's the cost, and there's a requirement. Look at verse 16. But I have used none of those things, nor have I written that they be done. For it would be better for me to die. Verse, uh, sorry, that's 15, 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, there's nothing to boast about because Christ assigned him his task. Now, let's carefully think about this. His life mission is you are going to preach the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 1, I am a debtor to Jews and to Greeks to preach to them the Gospel to Greeks, rather, and barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as in me is, he says, I'm ready to preach the Gospel to you at Rome also. Just a couple of chapters earlier in my Bible, in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul gives a lengthy testimony. He talks about how at midday he was on the road to Damascus and he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And everybody around him fell to the ground and he heard a voice In Hebrew, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he responded, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus said, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Here is the necessity that's laid upon the Apostle Paul. To make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. Therefore, he's addressing King Agrippa. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first Damascus and Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and then to Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. That's the Gospel. Right there. He is commissioned as a minister of the Gospel and he says, woe is me if I don't do it. Now, I'll I'll make a contrast here, okay, for all of you uh, young budding ministers waiting to get into pastoral ministry or missionary work, okay. This is not the cry of a pietistic or mystical minister of the gospel who says, I'm "I'm in an inner, I have an inner compulsion that I must preach." Or like Jeremiah 20 verse 9. His word, his word was like fire shut up in my bones and I could not hold it back. Yeah, pastors have those feelings. We have those thoughts. We have those desires in our hearts. This statement that Paul makes is not that. This statement is not an internal compelling to preach the gospel. It is an external command Face to face with Jesus, that He tells you, this is now your job. Do it whether you like it or not. We usually talk about, I have to preach that. You know, I like to do that. I want to teach the Word of God. It's a privilege to do that. For Paul, privilege or no privilege didn't matter. That was His divine assignment. And He says, Woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. Now that's not like, you know, we say, when we're really depressed. Woe is me. Woe is me. It's not that kind of woe. You know what kind of woe it is? Woe to the wicked! Or Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. After he saw God high and lifted up on the throne, he saw the seraphs' six wings. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they covered their face. And with two, they flew. And they didn't stop crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. A man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's woe. That's what woe means. Not woe is me. Woe means a statement of judgment from God. We see woe throughout the uh, prophets in the Old Testament. You even see it in the New Testament. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, Matthew 23, 13. That's what the Lord says when he, when he means woe. He means woe. And that's what Paul is saying. If I don't preach the Gospel, I am toast. I am done. He's, in a, he, he, he's saying I'm facing divine judgment. I don't have that kind of calling per se. Not like the Apostle Paul had. Now, what is Paul's attitude then about preaching without... Without reward or without pay. It's not a burden to him, it's a delight. He embraced it willingly. By the way, when you have an assigned task, if you embrace it willingly, doesn't it make such a big difference as, you know, okay, I'm into it. I'm jumping in with both feet. That's what my dad has told me to do. That's what my boss has told me to do. I'm going to do it with all my might, as heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. But if you do the task and it's a drudgery and you don't embrace it you don't do a good job you do a half-baked job and you're the clock doesn't move when you do that you know a watched clock never moves and it just is misery but when you jump in with both feet and that's what Paul did if you just you know there's there's no reward in doing the job grumbling all the way just doing it in a minimalistic fashion but if you do it willingly and heartily, then there is a reward. But if you don't do it willingly, you still have a job to do. So what's the reward? Specifically, that when he preaches, he can not only do what the Lord commanded, but also give it free of charge. And that's something to rejoice about. This is the way that he keeps from abusing his rights in the Gospel. His attitude is different than a minister who works only for money. 1 Timothy 3.3 3 says, an elder must not be greedy for money. Titus 1.7, the same thing. Not greedy for money. Not covetous and so on. And that really brings us to the end of what Paul is saying. His situation is not exactly applicable today. There are no ministers who can say, Jesus told me to go into ministry. Paul could. But we can't, even if somebody tries to say that today. They're just kidding themselves, just deceiving themselves. Because he was an apostle, not a regular pastor. The necessity laid upon him was that Christ personally had called him to minister the gospel. This was no mere inner compulsion or subjective call to preach. It was completely objective, and if he didn't do it, it was woe for him. But his attitude is nevertheless instructive for us today, even though we don't have the exact same situation. Ministers today, of course, they have no problem with the command that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. We all like that. That's how we make our living. What is more difficult is practicing Paul's attitude of, I won't demand my rights. And some ministers have very, in very glowing ways have done this. When they, they go to a small country church that's struggling and there's five people there and they say, I will come and I will serve for nothing or next to nothing until we build up this church. But that's hard for some people. I won't demand my rights is the attitude. When it comes to pay, if some ministers didn't get paid, they would quit. Of course, every minister would find it more difficult to minister if they had to work outside. And of course, some ministry would be left undone. It's impossible to do, you know, in 160, 168 hours or, you know, when you have to work 40, 50, 60 of them. You just can't do as much ministry. That's all. But I think the point is more about the attitude. We do have rights as Christians, as individuals, as people. But are we willing to give them up? even theoretically or in practice, when needed, to advance the work of God. You know, we have a right to privacy and we have a right to this and we have a right to free speech and we have a right to that. And... Are we willing to give any of those up to advance the work of the Gospel? Or are we more about me than he. You know what I'm saying? Are we more about me than he? Is the gospel important enough to make us willing to endure hardship and inconvenience for its sake? Is it important enough that we do not mind being reviled or mischaracterized or be less well off because? of the Gospel of Christ. Our dear former pastor uh, told me many times when you go into ministry, prepare to be inconvenienced. Just prepare your mindset for that forever. Are you willing? Is your faith strong enough to be willing to have your schedule changed even at the last minute? To have your house invaded by guests? To have your pocketbook changed? You know, your finances different? Are you willing to give up something for the Gospel of Christ? King David said, I will not give something that costs me nothing. What's the value or the reward in that? Nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, how we thank You that from this passage we can extract a principle like that that will challenge our hearts to be ready to sacrifice for the Gospel. All we've said is the long way around saying what the Lord Jesus already told us. That unless a man is willing to take up his cross daily and follow Me, he is not worthy of Me. Lord, is this Gospel real to us in our hearts? Or is it just a, a thought process? Is it just, a, just so much information that we've acknowledged to be true? Or, or is it real? Is it that we have taken the footing, stand on the foundation that we will sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Maybe we'll be called upon to do that in a new way in the upcoming weeks and months. Perhaps years down the road in our lives, we will be called upon to do some kind of thing like this. Help us to be strong and to make the right decision to honor Christ. Even now, Lord, are there small things that we can change in our lives that will help us to live like the Apostle Paul with this attitude of willingness of receiving an eternal reward by forgetting about the temporal rewards we might have. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.